0: Welcome to Musonomics, I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. Obviously, this is a podcast, an educational podcast about the business of music, and sometimes we use music like this, or this,
1: to
0: emphasize a point help with transitions or add a little more texture to the audio experience. In doing so, we start to wade into the murky shores of music rights licensing.
2: In the United States, if you think about it, everything is negotiated except for your mechanical license. If you think about it, whether it's being used for film, television, video game, or podcast, every time you're going out with a request and you're negotiating a fee because you're using a song different than the way it was originally used. If you were to compare it to, say, radio, a radio, a DJ puts the song on and plays it from beginning to end, and that's it. In a podcast situation, it's usually being discussed. It is being used in the background. It's used in the foreground. It has a different um, value um, and use of it than, say, on free or even serious radio.
0: That's Deborah Manis Gardner. Who has been tagged the Queen of Music Clearances for her work getting the permission for the use of music as samples and in movies, TV shows, video games, podcasts, and more. We'll hear more from her later, as well as music supervisor Scott Velasquez and Premier Music Founder Josh Deutsch. But first, let's start to dip into the sea of terminology around music rights, so you know where we're swimming. Just as ships have their own language, bow, stern, port starboard. The words used to describe the ownership and permitted uses of music have their own definitions that date back over a hundred years. So let's begin at the beginning, shall we? As soon as a song is written down or recorded, it's protected in every country in the world by copyright law. This means the song's creators own the work, just like a car or a house, and it's treated like personal property in regards to who can use the song and how they can use it. These are called intellectual property rights and include other creative works like books and photographs. But what's unique about recorded music is that the law recognizes two sets of owners and two sets of rights. What you might think of as the song itself, the fancy term is the underlying musical composition, the lyrics and melody of the tune that the composer or songwriters came up with. This can be physically represented on sheet music. There can be a myriad of performances and recordings, but all of those uses would be of the same song. Songwriters often give control of their rights to their songs to a music publisher, who then generally handles all the licensing of these songs to those who want to use them, collects the money earned from these usages, called royalties, and finds new ways for that song to be used to make more money. Any individual song can have more than one writer and more than one publisher. All of these need to give their permission for certain uses of the work. Then there's the recorded performance of the song, the sound recording, which may or may not be performed by the original songwriters or composers. The rights to the recording are called master rights, a term that dates back to when records were first made and there was a single master recording from which all other copies were produced. If a recording artist is signed to a record label, the label usually controls the master rights, similar to the music publisher except there is usually only one master rights holder. Copyright laws have different aspects that cover things like recordings, live performance, and radio in terms of who can use them, what permissions are required, and what will be paid for the usages. This is how creative people get paid for the works they create. The laws take into consideration things like whether the use of the song is static or fixed to a specific medium, a recording versus a live performance if a consumer can actively or passively choose to listen to a particular song to stream versus a playlist or radio-like stream. Now, for many of these uses of music, it would be too cumbersome to deal with individual licenses for each song, both for the entity who wants to use the music and the publishing and master rights holders. This is where the term blanket license comes into play. For example, radio stations can get a blanket license for all the music they play. So long as they follow the terms of the license and pay their fees to the performing rights organizations that represent the writers and publishers that control those songs, they can play the music for their broadcast channels or for non-interactive streaming without needing to get permission for each song. In the United States, public performances are licensed primarily by ASCAP and BMI and also CSEC and Global Music Rights. Where this gets tricky is when you have mediums that combine different kinds of works. Think movies, television, and videos. The use of music in these media is called synchronization, or sync for short. In this case, placing music in the program synchronized with the video you're seeing on the screen. Sync licenses are individually negotiated in a free market and not subject to regulation, which means that any of the copyright owners, which can be the publisher, label, recording artist, or songwriter, can reject the request to use the song. In other words, there is no compulsory license for a sync request. This brings us to the use of music in podcasts. As you'll hear from our guests, most entities are treating the use of music in podcasts as a sync, the combination of a spoken word work with a musical one, since the music is being synchronized in a new spoken word work. But now we're sailing in uncharted waters. Right now, music budgets for podcasts are small. The potential for market growth is large, but still uncertain. Music companies have been licensing radio, movies, and TV for a long time, and learned many lessons in figuring out how to do so for downloads and streaming services. But they're not exactly clear where podcasting fits into the overall scenario. Remember, sync licensing is unregulated, and every transaction sets a precedent for rights holders. Overcharge, and you may kill a nascent business that could generate a lot of revenue in the long term, and even in the short term especially this year when we're looking at a COVID-starved industry where there's no revenue coming from live performances for music publishers and songwriters. Undercharge, and you may be leaving money on the table that you will never be able to recover. In addition, music companies are still stinging from historical lessons that found them on the wrong side of new technology, driving new kinds of music uses. Most notably, in the United States, record labels are still fighting for the right to earn royalties from the play of their records on AM and FM radio stations. Now, this takes us into the treacherous currents of fair use. U.S. copyright law outlines four factors in evaluating exceptions from licensing requirements, which include whether the use is transformational, meaning does it change the original work, the nature of the original work, the amount and substance of the copy, and the effect on the potential market for the work. Unfortunately, the only way to know for sure if something is protected under fair use is to go to trial, since this is a rather expensive test. Many music users choose to license things even if they could likely fall under a fair use exception. The fair use doctrine does allow for specific exceptions such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Arts reviewers can quote from the works they're reviewing, but note that most carefully avoid revealing major spoilers that may be detrimental to the market for the work. Most copyright infringers' first cry of defense is fair use usually saying their use is promotional to the song. This is when most rights holders roll their eyes and shudder involuntarily. So there are podcasts about individual musical works, like the podcast Broken Record. Where does it fit in? These uses could be considered promotional to the artist, but of course, the value of the podcast itself is based on the artist's work. While created by the great music producer Rick Rubin, the writer Malcolm Gladwell, and former New York Times editor Bruce Headlam, listeners may be more likely to tune in to hear the backstory on Wycliffe Jean, The Black Keys, Brandy Carlyle, and Tanya Tucker, or any of the great musicians that have been featured on the program. This is where experts like Deborah Manis Gardner come in, who happens to work with Broken Record. It's simple for radio stations to get a blanket license to play whatever music they want. Why is it so hard for podcasts to license music?
2: That's a great question. You know, the, the arguments go back and forth that podcasts are making a lot of money. Other people are saying podcasts are not making a lot of money. So fact that it's not something where you just turn on your radio and you can listen to it, m- meaning terrestrial, the publishers take the position that any music that is used in these podcasts will require clearances and will require payment of fees.
0: But why is there no compulsory license in podcasting as there is, for example, radio and, you know, digital radio uses?
2: The publishers are having these conversations and it applies to podcasts as well as like gaming as a matter of fact. So for example, the ideas that the publishers have is that because it's transmitting from point A to point B, it then has a hard configuration value to it. So that's when they start questioning it having the possibility of earning royalties versus having, you know, the the value of earning a sink or master use fee. And that's what we're dealing with with new technology and the digital age. The fact that it has to transmit and stop at one point and transmit and stop at another point, there are some old school publishers that are evaluating how digital is it? How much is it in the, in the air versus it has to sit someplace and sit in another place? It's fascinating. It's a good conversation to have.
0: Why do rights holders believe rightly or wrongly, that the licensing framework for podcasts is fundamentally a sync license that needs to be negotiated directly. And why is that so complicated?
2: In the united states if you think about it everything is negotiated except for your mechanical license if you think about it whether it's being used for film television video game or podcast every time you're going out with a request and you're negotiating a fee because you're using a song different than the way it was originally used if you were to compare it to say radio a radio adjo puts the song on and plays it from beginning to end and that's it in a podcast situation it's usually being discussed. It is being used in the background. It's used in the foreground. It has a different value and use of it than say on free or even serious radio.
0: Right. And so, if one wants to use music that is, say, owned by a record company and was written by one or more co writers, what are the mechanics involved in licensing that piece of music for a podcast, assuming the podcaster wants to go to the time and expense of doing that?
2: You need to contact both parties. You need to contact the record label to get permission for use of their master recording. And it's not that you can go to the artist, because if the artist is signed to a record label, the label owns the rights. And the same thing on the publishing. You know, and, and again, Let's say it's the artist that wrote the song they have a publishing deal a great example Paul Simon. Paul Simon wrote most of his music, but his material was released on a record label. He now has a publishing administration deal with Universal Music Publishing. And so even if he's performing this song, and let's say he wants to give it away for free, you still have to walk through the process of going to the label and going to the publisher. Someone who's not as big or maybe not as recouped as Paul Simon, the labels want that money to go against the recoupment.
0: But for most popular music today, there are multiple writers. And in fact, there can be an unlimited number of writers publishers associated with every piece of music. And any one of them could stop a piece of music from being licensed by a podcaster. Is that right?
2: That is correct. And and let's get even trickier, where one writer could have a publishing deal where more than one publisher represents them as a writer for one song. So (laughs) it's just like to throw it out there, you know. Harrison Lewis are perfect examples where some of their copyright is Sony ATV and Universal, and then they just sold a portion of their to cobalt. So you have three parties to go to for two writers for one song just on the publishing side.
0: What does it cost to license a piece of music for a podcast? Does it depend on how popular the podcast is or their advertising revenue? Uh, How do you negotiate it?
2: I was ready for that. So when we go out and send requests, we will seek worldwide and perpetuity and offer five hundred dollars and then we'll come back and do five years worldwide for 250. not all publishers will agree to those rates and sometimes it can go as high as one to two thousand dollars.
0: Which need to be split amongst all publishers and, and writers, uh, depending on what their contribution was or their ownership of the song, right?
2: Right. Those fees I gave you were based on 100%. Right.
0: Does fair use really apply then for podcasters who just want to use, say, a clip of the song?
2: It's interesting. Again, we, we discussed that with Broken Records and we discussed it with another client because some of these podcasts are specifically explaining how these songs were created. They were almost, it's almost educational. So, But unfortunately, then you have to spend a huge amount of money for these amazing fair use attorneys who then have to make that determination and evaluate if it's fair use, a a term that is thrown around a lot with a lot of documentaries. And some documentaries have gotten into trouble using fair use, and it really wasn't applicable. And sometimes it is
0: pretty complicated, right?
2: It is complicated. And it's a question that we we usually broach with our clients and then ask them to bring in lawyers who are experts with that.
0: Deborah, what if the artist is on the podcast? Is a license still required then?
2: Yes, it is. Again, look at a broken record podcast, you know, where they have these artists, where they have the writers. You know, that was one of the things when we first started broken record podcast, you know, one of the major publisher companies came back asking for thousands of dollars. And I said, that's your writer on the podcast talking about their song that they want to play. Whether you've given them an advance or not, you wouldn't be a publishing company without people's songs. So you have to work with your writers as well. And so the prices came way down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good for you. Well, what if the artist plays live? Do you still need licenses from both the record company and the publisher?
2: Live is a great question. So what we've learned, especially through the days of COVID, is when an artist performs live, that re- if they are signed to a record label, that label owns the likeness of their voice. And you still need to get permission from the record company. And then you have to get on your hands and knees and beg and grovel for them to give it to you for free, or they'll charge like a small fee. On the publishing side, you you know... Well, if it's live and it's only aired that one time, it could fall under the PRO agreement that the podcast should have, but it's a podcast, so it's not going to just be that one time use, so then it falls unto that it locks to something and therefore has a sync fee and you would have to clear it. These are great conversations that we're having, again, not just podcasts, but just live performances that are happening on the internet.
0: Deborah, many ad-supported podcasts are highly lucrative, but most podcasters say at the bottom or middle of the pyramid. They can't afford to pay the kinds of license fees that you described for every piece of music that they want to play. So they often resort to using pre-cleared, relatively low-cost production music. What kind of new framework would you like to see that would enable podcasters to feature music in their shows without running the risk of litigation, but also allows artists and rice holders to get paid?
2: I think if there's ad revenue being created from a podcast that you'd be able to offer a portion of that revenue to the publishers and to the labels to maybe make it work out better. Kind of like what YouTube did, you know, where they negotiated these large deals with major publishers so that they didn't have to go back each time to clear it and they got a portion of the ad revenue.
0: But beyond that, do you see a future where there is a compulsory license like there is in public performance, which radio benefits from?
2: I don't see that happening. I Mm. think there's just such a need for publishers and labels to make sure that they earn that revenue. Now, we kind of have to look look at music as a whole. As I said, I don't believe anything should be free. If you don't pay for music, then how's the artist or writer going to be able to create new music down the road? So there has to be some sort of compensation for use of music. Maybe you're starting out as a small podcast and not making a lot of money, but in two years, you're making astronomical amount of money. So you have to kind of balance all this stuff out and try to figure out what is the best solution to this. But what we can do is work with our clients on budgets It's just like when you're doing a documentary or doing a film or TV show, you have a budget for all the elements, podcasts, need to do budgets. And I know a lot of people might even be doing it out of their bedrooms, but you need to, as a business, come up with a budget. When I started DMG Clearances, I had a little black three ring notebook and I created a budget. What's my electricity? What's this? What's that? What portion of my apartment goes towards DMG? Same thing with a podcast. You should have a budget. And if you do want to use music, you need to create a budget for your music. And then you have to look at two parts of it. One is, do I have to start with library music? And then two, if I'm going to get advertising, how much money can I earn from advertising? So I can then put another line in for more important important musical pieces.
0: Podcasting today is a you know roughly a, a billion dollar business in the United States and is forecast to become significantly bigger than that. At what point do you think we reach a, a tipping point where the parties come together and come up with a more scalable solution than the one that exists today?
2: You know, if you've ever dealt with these major publishing companies, they're never open to any of those kind of discussions. They're so scared of what they're going to lose out on in two years time that they can't see past today and that's always been the battle
0: let's leave it there then deborah manis gardner thanks for joining us thank you now let's hear from scott velasquez who recently launched a new company frisson sync focused on music supervision for podcasts the art of choosing the right songs or even having new songs created to produce the soundscape for the podcast audio experience he also handles clearance work as well how did you come to do this you've music souped a lot of different things
3: Yeah, I kind of, I've kind of bounced around a lot in the music industry. I have done everything from run music festivals to program like radio and retail playlist for clients. Um, i worked on indie projects, features, TV shows. I've run sync departments for labels and they have all just kind of combined all into this one thing. And I kind of just happened into the world of podcasts. So it's crazy right now. It's, it's huge. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's all over the place and just kind of winded up here. So here I am.
0: Right. And so uh, tell me a bit about the different kinds of shows that you've done and in what context so that, you know, we understand sort of the, the scope of the of the different kinds of music licenses that you've been doing.
3: Yeah. So specifically for podcasts, I work closely with um, the podcast network Wondery, who are responsible for huge podcasts like Dirty John, Dr. Death, uh, Straight Next Door, Blood Ties, things like that. And through a personal connection, they reached out to me one day and asked if I could help facilitate a license. They knew that I did licensing and I knew that I had the contacts in in that world and the contacts with the labels and the publishers and things. And that kind of escalated from handling a license request to handling most of their license requests to doing their music supervision and to more recently commissioning a bunch of customs for an upcoming project that they're working on. So it was very much just, I kind of fell into it. I knew somebody and that some Somebody dropped me in and said, let's do it. Can you talk about your
0: approach when you get put on a, a particular show? Do you have a process that you tend to stick to when you first think about how you're going to find the right music for the right show?
3: Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's as any as any show, it'll get sent over to me. Sometimes there'll be music dropped in or there will be a certain you know, sound or just or synopsis of what's going on. So I, I listen to that just to kind of get a feel of how and where it should go. Yes. So uh,
0: you approach the podcast, and the first time you uh, interact with it, there's, uh, it might be tempt, right? So there might just be temporary music in it.
3: Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it is. And so for me, my musical taste, I like something unique something unconventional, one-of-a-kind sounds and voices. If it's a little off, if it's weird, if it's something that people wouldn't normally gravitate to, I like it. I'm not an only child, but I very much have like only child syndrome when it comes to music. Um, I love like vintage and underground. I love like Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Jackie Wilson, Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire. But then I also like undergrounds, like Gail, who is this 16-year-old artist that I've known for forever. Um, she's like Bishop Briggs. She's going to be the next Billie Eilish. It's I mean, it's crazy. John Lindell, who sounds exactly like Justin Timberlake, is amazing. Sings, dance, all that stuff. King Princess, who is this massive queer icon that's amazing. And then I always fall back on my favorites like The Flaming Lips or Regina Specter, Brandi Carlisle, Queen, you know, and all of these people have very unique voices or unique performances or sounds. And that's very much what i gravitate to
0: is it just as important in the podcast context to have you know good working relationships with all of the rights holders who control the rights in the music that you want to license or is there another way that sort of skips over the relationshipy part
3: Um, you know what? Most of the time, yeah, the relationship is great. If you have that pre-existing relationship, it's a lot easier to clear something quickly. They know you, they know that you're reliable. They know what's going on. They know the terms, you know, that are going to be for the license, what you're going to be asking for, and, and they're used to your budget. So that's actually been one thing that's been pretty great about working with podcasts is the budget is pretty much the same. So when I reach out to people that I've worked with in the past, they know what to expect, they know what I'm gonna be asking for, and they can give me, you know, a realistic expectation of what I'm gonna be able to afford or get or or things like that. So it's actually, the constant has actually been pretty great.
0: And in your experience, what is a decent budget for music for a show?
3: So a lot of the times I'll do a lot of the theme, the theme licenses or things like, uh, just something similar to that a lot of a lot of the things i'm licensing are anywhere between 5 and 10,000 for a theme use and I, and
0: and just to, to clarify by a theme use you mean the opening and closing theme
3: yes uh, Intro and outro songs that introduces the podcast that plays over the show id you know it's it's a little different for podcasts because you have to have you know audio it's just audio there's no video and so when you're when you're doing that you have you have your show ID, which is, you know, they're opening credits that are essentially read You know, here's what's going on, you know, here's the name of the podcast. You'll have it cold open going into the intro that plays for maybe 30 seconds and then you go into the episode. And then there's the outro that has um you know the end of it, sometimes what's coming up next, the the audio credits at the very end and and so on and so forth.
0: So even where there is music being commissioned specifically for a show for original opening and closing theme music, that has to be licensed as well as commissioned, right? Correct. What was the most difficult music license that you had to do that you absolutely had to have, like no plan B, must get it
3: done? You know what? I've actually, this is going to sound terrible. I, I haven't really had anything that's super difficult, I think that most music supervisors would back me up in saying indie movies are always tricky because of your budget constraints. You have to get creative with your licenses, you know, your terms. You have to potentially set up step deals or, you know, you have to set up, you have to get creative with your credits. I, I did do an indie film last year about, about a musician and that was indie. Indie films, especially biopics, are always always tricky you don't have any you don't have any leverage for negotiation you have to have the song and that's it you know and and that's always that's always a big thing because if you aren't really in an in a position to negotiate you lose a lot of your power so and especially in indies it's hard fortunately we were we, we worked with a lot of artists who gave us some gratis rights here and there but some didn't and it would sometimes it took me six months to get a particular license for a song and it was just a lot of back channeling going through you know going through the label and then i didn't hear anything back from the label so i had to go directly to a manager and then i didn't hear anything back from a manager so i had to go to the producers to ask if I could contact the artists. And then the artist had to reach out to the other artists who had then tried to reach out to the manager. You know, it just kind of went all back and forth. And yeah, those are always, you know, music, music documentaries are always really difficult.
0: Finally, should it be easier to use more music in podcasts? Every license has to be done in a very bespoke way, because at least in the current way of being able to use music legally, podcast is considered a sync license. Should it be easier?
3: Oh, of course. I think my biggest thing that, I'm, that I've been lobbying for at least a year now, most labels at this point don't grant perpetuity for podcast licenses because they're still considering podcasts to be a developing platform. And a lot, a lot of what I do is, is education. You know, if, if I haven't worked with this label or this publisher before, I send them a request and I say, can we hop on the call? Because a lot of times they don't know how to license a podcast or what to expect or how to quote it.
0: You think it would be good for music creators and the people who administer their rights on their behalf if there were just a lot less friction in the process? Like, would that be a good thing?
3: Yeah, I I don't think I've encountered a lot of friction. It it seems, you know, it's to me that people are just, it's slow to change. And letting something new in that hasn't been the norm is, you know, is, is a bit scary sometimes. And I understand that. But then when you turn and you see podcasts who are being left and right in Hollywood turned into series, TV shows, you know, and movies and things like that, that's you know, that are taking over all of these options in Hollywood, you'd think that that might be a source that they would want to explore a little bit more.
0: But you don't, it sounds like you don't really foresee a, you know, compulsory license, for example, happening for music and podcasts.
3: You know what I do? I have heard rumblings and I've talked to several people that say that those are in the works it's just got to go through a lot of approval processes for you know at major labels and and a lot of things like that they have to trickle down if you get the big people to come in then a lot of it trickles down and becomes industry standard i work with a lot of independent labels and a lot end up granting perpetuity rights and licenses and things like that and it's been it's been really effective and i prefer working a lot of times with indie labels because you can find some, I, you know, like I said, I have the only child syndrome when it comes to music. So finding something that no one else has is very attractive to me, anyways. And so a lot of times working with those indie publishers or labels end up being the best call that I could ever make.
0: Scott Velasquez, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks, Larry. Finally,
0: let's hear from Josh Deutsch, the CEO and founder of Premier Music Group, which he founded in 2018. Let's let Josh explain.
1: We're a music strategy and supervision company. We are a creative agency for music. Our clients are a mix of agencies, brands, and artists, and we focus on music strategy and supervision, uh, which includes all parts of the rights management process. Um, We also write brand strategies for artists, and Premiere really aims to deliver a more considered approach to how music is used in advertising for our clients, leveraging along with a lot of collective experience, relationships, and resources, uh, strategy, data, and insights to help our clients make better decisions about how, how to use music. Prior to Premiere, I started a company called Downtown in 2006. Prior to that, i was EVP and head of A&R at Virgin Records and Electra Records, and Capital Records. So, been in the, uh, in the record business for a minute.
0: What have you been doing in the podcast space?
1: Um, well, obviously like there's so much growth, um, you know, the stats are kind of, are kind of amazing, you know, like half of the population is listening to a podcast as of 2020, I think a third people listen to one every month and a quarter listen to listen every week. It's I think it's up, you know, it's, it's up significantly from, from year on year so you know with that obviously there's a lot of production and advertiser interest uh in podcasts it's and and there's a growing interest in using music so what's exciting about that you know for us is that music licensing is still in its infancy uh, across the podcast universe i think that's still being defined it's a little difficult for independent podcasters for sure who don't have access to rights management expertise or resources Um, and so i think that's why you know most folks in the music side of it you know are aware that a lot of podcasters don't use premium music. What do you mean by premium music? Just to give you a little context, since it's it's early stages, right? There's There's often a disconnect between how the rights holders, major labels, publishers, how they rightfully want to price music for sync licensing. But there's a disconnect between that. And how much revenue an individual podcast can realistically generate. So this is a little bit exacerbated by all the headlines around uh, the podcast industry. How much podcast providers are getting paid to to move to a particular distributor, and that also supports you know the rights holders' position, the labels, publishers. And again, rightfully in my view, that these uses should be properly valued. But there's a disconnect there because any one individual podcast, and definitely, we just have a lot lots of people, you know kind of came to the medium, doesn't necessarily support a, you know, licensing a a Beatles song or, you know, something that you'd want to use. So there's a, there's a disconnect there. I, I think I think to me it's like the early days of the streaming business where the economics were uh, frankly kind of untenable for both sides before the streaming business really reached enough significant scale for a pricing model that made sense to actually return real revenue to the rights holders. So so you know I think I think that's the some context around what the conversation is. So what I mean by premium music is there there are legal solutions and I think look honestly I think a legal solution is a good one, but they're typically kind of like library solutions. They're pre-cleared music that isn't necessarily generated by an artist. And, uh, you know, my bias is always to, you know, and as a business on the premier side, we always, when we can, we always want to solve for our our clients' music needs by, by returning value to the artist, the, the label, publisher and artist community, as opposed to, you know, using a library of, you know, music that's typically generated by a company and not rewarding, you know, individual artists. I don't know if you're familiar with the Disgraceland podcast, but he has a funny way of sure. uh, dealing with that very issue where he, he could be talking about Prince or the Stones, but he since he can't afford it, he'll play, you know, some loop off of his of, of his synth and And be transparent that he can't afford to license the uh, you know the uh, the master that would that would go, you know, it would be associated with the with the podcast episode. But that's a very good indication of what of the current kind of disconnect right now.
0: What are some of the uses that you've gotten done that uh, you're most proud of?
1: You know, without going into specific details around negotiations, i think I think the thing to understand is that this is this is a, like any sync license right it's a negotiation so uh the rights holders you know can literally say no or you know charge whatever they want i think there's a myth out there that you can rely on fair use but that doesn't that doesn't you know really work
0: it doesn't it doesn't shield the podcast producer from liability right it doesn't and
1: it really only allows for the usage of like a small portion of of the work and for very specific conditions so i i I think in a general sense that's a myth that just needs to be debunked you know podcast require sync licenses these are you know the same traditional licenses that govern music and television, films and commercials instead of syncing the music with visuals you're you know you're syncing it with, a, with the with the audio program which is why you need a license and so that you know the rights holder can say no which doesn't usually happen or you know can it starts a negotiation, and I think that's the good news because what we've been able to do is kind of bridge the gap between, you know, sometimes really divergent expectations between somebody starting out with a podcast that has a fairly limited budget. It starts with a big disconnect on pricing, you know, where somebody has a budget of twenty five hundred for a theme song for twenty five episodes, and the rights holder, again, you know, rightly in my view, because this is this is a this is a negotiation that. What, what it's, it's important to understand that, that the reason that it's important to the labels and publishers and artists and, and their various you know, representatives is that as the podcast universe continues to grow, these kinds of decisions are going to really have a big macro effect on revenue as opposed to solving just for a particular podcast podcast problem. So I think for, you know, where, where we like to think of ourselves anyway, you know, is, is to bridge that gap between, you know, what, what somebody can actually afford and, and also what's a re what's a way to value, you know, the, a a copyright in a way that respects that, you know, something iconic. So we were able to license a, a really iconic nineties hip hop record from a major label and publisher and with the blessing of of the estate and bridging that gap you know it was a gap that was a factor of 10 you know bigger than what was originally contemplated by the podcaster but and a lot of that is by bringing the rights holder into how is this being used you know how is this going to enhance will there be other things to to create value for for the rights holder and the copyright like it ends up being a conversation so we want to be involved in bridging that gap and i think like going forward i think a licensing framework I think everybody in the space feels that you know we we do need kind of like a more of like a a licensing framework that does this in a slightly more systematic way
0: what do you think that could look like
1: i think right now the there's such a disconnect between existing pricing tiers and individual podcast budgets so i i think you know i think i think we need to develop tiers and i think that'll be easier now that you have bigger players in the space like when you look at Spotify, iHeart, Apple, everybody's investing in owned audio content. You know, I think it becomes easier to, to organize it in a way according to to scale. And in some cases, according to audience or advertiser reach, I think there's lots of variables that can go into creating like a tiered marketplace that, that makes more sense on both sides. And if you've got uh, it's okay if if it's if it's not a hundred thousand dollar you know license if there's if there's a hundred of them.
0: Do you ever foresee a time when licensing you know featured music for podcasts could become frictionless or even automated or somewhat automated? You know, we're constantly
1: looking for solutions that, as I mentioned earlier, return value to the to the artist community. I, you know, and I think I think that messaging is also important for a lot of our clients. Uh, in a in a context where things like that are, are are easy to see, you know everything is 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 pretty transparent right now. So I don't know. I don't foresee a an automated solution for premium content right now because you know as I mentioned earlier, that negotiation is still about bringing two sides together. You know, and it's in some cases for the for the really valuable copyrights, um, those 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 price that pricing is really needs to be reconciled. So I think I think. Uh, you know and, and and we like the the being you know negotiating those rights is kind of what we do and again my my analogy to the early days of the streaming business like the 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 DSPs were were hemorrhaging money for every dollar came in some significant percentage was going out to the rights holders so it was too expensive from a business perspective and yet for for an artist you know it wasn't a sustainable amount of money on a per stream basis when there wasn't enough scale there's still quite a lot of heated dialogue around that but but they've over time you know those businesses have converged as the scale has brought the individual uses up to to a level that seems to satisfy some of the rights holders i think we need to get to a place like that you think we'll get there in the
0: next year two three five years
1: yeah i think there's i think there's a tremendous amount of pressure on both sides to get there Uh, you know and i think the history of the of the major label dsp relationship suggests that you know you have a lot of really intelligent interesting people at the table negotiating deals that take into account you know both sides issues same thing i would say with the publishers i think particularly now when some parts of the revenue as uh, you know you did a, you did a, a section on the live business you know are, are challenged for the foreseeable future i think other any place you can monetize whether or not it's live streaming or podcasting or and just gain exposure to these iconic copyrights or using that that attention to to kind of reinvigorate you know some great copyrights i think everybody's everybody's aligned i think and it just becomes from my perspective it's about not thinking one side is right or wrong, but understanding why, you know, that disconnect exists and then how do you bridge that gap?
0: Right. And not for free.
1: Definitely. Absolutely not for free. It, you know, you, it, it is a get what you pay for uh, market for sure.
0: Josh, thanks for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics, LLC, Strategy Consulting, and Analytics for and about the music industry. With many thanks to our guests, Deborah Manis-Gardner, Scott Velasquez, and Josh Deutsch. Technical production this episode from Nakul Sharma of the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Graduate Program. And editorial production by Laurie Jacobson at Jaybird Communications. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it's so important in helping new listeners find our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Musonomics. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can find our contact information on the website Musonomics.com. From the Music Business Program at the Department of Music and Performing Arts Professions at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening, stay safe and be well.